Good morning, dear friends. Good to see you this morning. I want to thank you for being here. So always a pleasure and an honor to be together as a spiritual family to worship our great God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible with you, I want to ask you to take it out, please. Go back into your New Testament, to the book of Acts. Go to Acts one more time this month. Go to Acts chapter 16, please. Acts chapter 16. I want to begin this morning by suggesting to you that the verses that our brother Ryan read for us this morning describe a very rough and unfair moment in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Going back to the verses, notice how after experiencing some success, preaching the gospel to some women at a riverside, and after successfully casting an evil spirit out of a slave girl, the scripture says that the apostle Paul and Silas have some evil charges made against them. They have some false accusations made against them and they are arrested and they are beaten and, and, and they are thrown in jail. Verse 24 says that they have their feet fastened in the stocks. They are imprisoned in the city of Philippi. Again, this is a very unfair and very rough period in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but thankfully, thankfully the story does not stop there. Thankfully, when we get to verse number 25 of the chapter, the Bible says this, Acts 16, 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Verse 27, when the jailer awoke, he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? As you ponder on those verses for just a moment or two, if you don't mind, I want to spend just a couple of minutes rehearsing some of the things that we, that we learned together in our sermon last Sunday morning. If you recall in our sermon from last Sunday morning, we considered five cases of conversion, five different cases of conversion from the book of Acts. We considered the conversion of the Samaritans, and Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian eunuch and Saul of Tarsus and, and Cornelius. Remember, we made the point that because these people were not Jews, their cases of conversion that are recorded for us in the gospel are unusual cases of conversion. They are unique cases of conversion. They are all radical cases of conversion. 
in the book of Acts. And before we think that these unusual cases stop with them, let me suggest to you this morning that we need to pause and really consider what's going on here in Acts 16. Going back to Acts 16, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice the remarkable turn of events. I want you to notice the amazing turn of events. I mean, who in the world could have seen this coming? Who in the world could have anticipated this happening? Who in the world could have anticipated that the very man charged with watching over Paul and Silas while they were locked up in prison for preaching the gospel that very night, he would be converted by the gospel? That very night, he will become a Christian. That very night, he will be saved by the blood of Jesus and added to the Lord's church. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what this chapter records for us in the word of God. And I want to begin this morning by submitting to your consideration that this whole situation this whole jailhouse conversion story that we find here in the book of Acts, it actually began with a crisis. It began with a crisis. In fact, the text specifically tells us that it actually began with a natural calamity. It actually began with an earthquake that was so severe that it shook that the foundations of the prison and it freed everybody in the jail. It unfastened all the prisoners' chains and it unlocked all the doors or all the prison cells. And when the jailer woke up from his sleep and he realized what had happened, the scripture says he panicked. He became absolutely terrified. He assumed that, that all the prisoners were escaping and he drew his sword to kill himself. He was going to commit suicide on this night. And someone says, well, Sean, why was he going to commit suicide? Well, my friend, the reason why he was going to commit suicide is because we got to understand that during this time, during the time of the first century, during the time of the Roman Empire, Roman law dealt very severely with jailers who weren't able to produce prisoners under their supervision. You see, if a prisoner during this time especially facing the death penalty was lost. The jailer would have to make restitution for that by forfeiting his own life. He, he would actually be actually be tortured first by the government. And then he would be executed. He would be killed swiftly and severely. That was common protocol during the time of the first century Roman world, and this jailer here in this story, he clearly doesn't want to face that. He doesn't want to meet his demise in that way. In fact, verse number 27 of the chapter says that in an effort to avoid that fate, he decides to take matters into his own hands. He decides to bypass torture and humiliation and take his own life. He is intent on killing himself this night. And had it not been for the Apostle Paul intervening, that's exactly what he would have done. 
had it not been for the Apostle Paul calling out to him in the night and assuring him that he didn't need to harm himself because none of the prisoners had escaped, this narrative we have here in the gospel, it would have ended totally different. It would have been a totally different story. Instead of being another amazing story of conversion, this particular account would have ended in tragedy. It would have ended in death. It would have ended with, ended with this jailer making a very bad decision during a time when he's totally stressed out in his life. You see, we need to understand that while the gospel doesn't tell us the name of this jailer, it does tell us that at this point in his life, this jailer, this jailer, he's totally stressed out. He is an emotional wreck. He is fearful. He's full of anxiety. He's suffering. He is someone who has reached rock bottom. And he doesn't feel like life's worth living anymore. He doesn't want to go on. He doesn't want to suffer a punishment for something that he felt was beyond his control. That is where this man is emotionally at this point in the story. And let me just ask you this morning, do you think we're surrounded by some people like that in our time today? I mean, think about it. In our time today, in 2020, here in the United States of America, here in the Valley of the Sun, do you think we're surrounded by some jailers? In other words, do you think that we're surrounded by some people, maybe even some people in this room who are right now facing some crisis in their lives? Who are hurting in their lives, who are rock bottom in their lives, who are experiencing emotional stress and, and troubles and tragedies. Do you think we are surrounded by some people in our time who are just like that jailer? You better believe we are. You better believe we are. You better believe that right now today, especially in our time today, we are surrounded by a bunch of people who are dealing with a lot of emotional stress. They are very distressed. They're going through all kinds of anxieties and periods of depression because they feel like a lot of rough stuff has fallen into their lap that's beyond their control. You better believe that during this time of pandemic we're living in right now, we are surrounded by a bunch of people right here in our little spot in the world who are afraid right now because maybe they lost their jobs. Or maybe because they're sick or maybe because they got sick family members and friends. You better believe that right now we are surrounded by people who have been recently diagnosed with cancer and they're going through treatments. Or maybe they're going through a rough divorce right now. Or maybe they're having problems raising their kids. Or maybe they just buried a loved one recently. Maybe a parent or a child or a friend. And they're dealing with all the stress and the sorrow and the grief that goes with that. You see, even though we're 2,000 years removed from this event in Acts chapter 16, we're still dealing with the same thing that Paul dealt with. Like the Apostle Paul, brothers and sisters, even today we're surrounded by a bunch of jailers. 
We're, we're surrounded by a bunch of people who are experiencing crisis and pain and they're full of anxiety. In fact, maybe during their times of crisis, pain and anxiety for the very first time in their lives, they're starting to think about God. They're starting to think about Jesus. They're starting to think about the gospel. They're starting to think about the purpose of life and the need for direction and meaning and comfort that can really only come from the word of God. You know, trials and, and problems have a way of, of doing that for people, right? I've seen that firsthand in my life. I saw it firsthand about six years ago in my life. Back in the fall of 2014, November of 2014, I started experiencing one of the roughest periods of my life. By now, all of you, or at least most of you here know that I was raised in a very unique way. I wasn't raised by my biological parents. Instead, I was raised by my grandparents. My grandparents raised me in East Texas. They raised me in Nacogdoches, Texas, the, the oldest town in Texas. And while I am the only grandchild that was raised by my grandparents, I think it's important that, that you understand that my grandparents did have four biological children, one of which was a son, their only biological son. My uncle, someone who was like my big brother since we were raised by the same people. Do you understand that? We were raised by the same people, and so we, we had more of a brother relationship than the typical uncle-nephew relationship. And that was a big deal to me. You see, since I've never, ever seen my biological father before, my uncle, who again was like my big brother, he was one of the few father figures I, I actually had in my life. He was one of the few men I had in my life who, who could teach me how to be a man. And so you can imagine how devastated and broken I was when he died of stomach cancer at only 50 years old. He died of stomach cancer after only being diagnosed with it for six months. He didn't live very long. But I want you to know this. I want you to know that even though he died at a relatively young age, there is a bright side to his story. You see, even though he obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was a teenager, for over 30 years, he was out of duty. He was a fallen away disciple. He was not serving the Lord faithfully, faithfully at all. But let me tell you something. Once that doctor walked into the room and he told him that he had stage four stomach cancer and there wasn't many options for him, that crisis woke him up fast. That crisis woke him up spiritually. That crisis got him thinking about God again. And it got him thinking about Jesus, and it got him thinking about death and the judgment, and thankfully he repented. And he started reading his Bible again, and he started praying, and he started gathering with the saints on the first day of the week consistently all the way until the day he died. You see, while I hated to lose him to cancer, I am thankful that from that crisis, something good took place. 
I am thankful that because of that crisis and because of the Lord granting him at least six more months, he was able to wake up spiritually. He was able to think about his need to serve God and get right with Jesus before he died. And the only reason I'm bringing that up to you this morning is because when I think about that, I, I can't help but be reminded of this account in Acts 16. Going back to Acts chapter 16, notice how when it came to this jailer, at this moment in, in, in the account, this man is totally stressed out. He is afraid. He's contemplating suicide. He's drawing his sword to kill himself. But once he's informed by the Apostle Paul that everything was okay and he didn't have to do that, instead of killing himself, what does he do? Well, the scripture says he decides to call for some help. In fact, the Bible specifically says that he decided to call on the Apostle Paul for help. I don't know about you, but I find that to be very interesting. I find it to be very interesting that out of all the people, out of all the prisoners in the jailhouse at this time, some of which had been there a lot longer than Paul, out of all the people in this building, the jailer comes to Paul for help. The Roman jailer humbles himself before the apostle Paul. The Roman jailer comes to this Jewish Christian who's been locked up for preaching the gospel. And he asked him, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He comes to Paul for help out of all the people in the jail. You know, this question right here, this question, what must I do to be saved? When you study what commentators say about it, commentators usually have two prominent things they say about this question. First, some commentators suggest that with this question, what must I do to be saved? The jailer has in his mind his own physical life. Some say that with this question, the jailer is thinking about Roman punishment. He's thinking about this terrible predicament he finds himself in. He's asking Paul, what do I need to do to survive this moment? Some think with this question, the jailer is asking about saving his physical life. But a second thought that is often offered by commentators that I personally agree with is with this question. The jailer is not thinking about physical life. Instead, he's thinking about spiritual life. He's thinking about salvation. He's thinking about God. He's thinking about the same God that Paul and Silas have been praying to and singing praises to on this night. I want you to go back to the text again. Look at Acts 16, verse 25, please. Acts 16, 25. I want you to notice how in that verse, Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us about some things that were going on that night before the earthquake. Notice how verse 25 says that before the earthquake occurred, the apostle Paul and Silas were in the jailhouse praying, right? They were praying to God and they were singing praises to God. In fact, their singing was so loud that all the prisoners in the jail could hear them. 
All the prisoners in the facility could hear Paul and Silas singing praises to God. And let me just ask you, if all the prisoners could hear Paul and Silas singing praises to God, do you think the jailer could have as well? You think he could have also heard them singing praises to God? I suspect that he probably could. In fact, I'm pretty sure that he could. I'm pretty sure that this jailer, as he's watching over all these prisoners, he could hear Paul and Silas continuing to give glory to God, even though they were suffering terribly for preaching the gospel. I'm pretty sure that he could hear them singing praise to God, even though just a few hours prior to that, they had been beaten severely. They had been slapped around, they had been struck many times, and they had been thrown in prison for promoting their faith. Brothers and sisters, there is no doubt that the jailer could have heard Paul and Silas singing these praises to God. And at first, when he heard them singing those praises, he probably thought that was kind of weird. He probably thought that that was kind of strange, that these guys are singing praise to God even though they've been locked up just a few hours prior. But I want you to notice how even though he may have thought that was strange, when a crisis came crashing down on him and his life, who did he go to first for help? Well, he went to, he went to them first for help. He went to Paul first for help. He asked Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Question, why would he do that? Why would this Gentile, Roman, this Roman jailer, go to the prisoners for help? More precisely, why would he go to these Jewish Christians for help? Well, I want to suggest that the main reason why he went to these two men for help out of everybody else was because he recognized something different about them. He recognized their optimistic spirit and their positive attitude during a time of crisis. He recognized their lack of complaining and their lack of griping, even though they were going through a miserable circumstance. He recognized their worship. He recognized how they were good moral people because they did not try to escape, even though they could have on this night. He even recognized their compassion towards him, even though he probably had no compassion towards them prior to that earthquake. Bottom line, this man, this jailer went to them for help because he knew there was something different about them. He knew that these men were special and unique. And isn't that exactly the kind of impact that God wants all his children to have on the world? Isn't that exactly what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 5 and verse 6? When in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let your light shine. This is talking about godly living, Christian living. Authentic discipleship, let your light shine before men, the people in the world in such a way that they may see your good works, that they may notice your Christian lifestyle, and that will cause them to, to glorify your father who's in heaven. That's what's going on in Acts 16. And, and it's ironic how Paul 
in his letter to the Philippians of all people, he echoes what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 16. In Philippians 2, and verses 14 through 15, after telling these Christians to do all things without grumbling and complaining, which can be hard to do, Paul then says, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you as Christians as appear as lights in the world. Do you see the point Paul is making? Do you see how Paul is saying to us that even though we live in the world, we are not to be of the world? We are not to be like the world. Instead of being like the world and of the world, the scripture says that as Christians, we are to be different. We are to be special. We are to be unique. We are to be the kind of people who are at all times shining our Christian lights brightly so that people can notice us and recognize that we're the real deal. The Lord expects us to live a certain way at all times. To shine our lights in front of the world and the main reason or one of the main reasons why the Lord wants us to always shine when we're out in the world is because our Christian lifestyle may be the first step that a lost person takes or notices to start seeking the Lord. Start asking questions about our faith so that they can share with us. In the kingdom of God, let me tell you something. When the world looks at us and notices that we're different, notices that we're full of optimism and peace, even though we're living during a terrible time right now, when they notice that we're not gripers and complainers, when they notice that, that we have great and rock-solid marriages, and our kids are well behaved and we're kind and we're compassionate and we don't curse and laugh at, laugh at filthy jokes and we are respectful and honorable towards our government. And we are honest and moral, ethical workers on our jobs and we are content with the blessings we have in our lives. When the world looks at us and notices that we have those kind of characteristics, brothers and sisters, you know what that's going to do? That's going to stand out to them. That's going to be noticeable to them. That's going to give us a positive influence with them. In fact, like the jailer, whenever the folks we know who are lost are having problems in their lives, they may remember our Christian lifestyle. They may remember our Christian influence and they may come to us for help first. They may come to us seeking the Lord first. They may come to us asking questions, asking us, how can I have the same kind of peace and relationship with God that that you have. That's what's going on here in Acts 16. Do you, do you see it? Do you see how here in Acts 16, this jailer, when faced with a crisis, he remembers the lifestyle of two Christians. And he comes to these two Christians for help, and the Apostle Paul is certainly going to give him the help that he's looking for. Look back at the text one more time. Acts 16, look at verse, verse 31. The jailer says, sirs, what must I do to be saved during this time of crisis? And they said, Paul and Silas said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. And they took him that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. 
And immediately he, the jailer, was baptized, not just him, but him and his whole household. And he brought them into his house and he set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. I want you to notice carefully what's going on there. Notice how when he came to this question of this question of what must I do to be saved? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is going to give him a biblical answer. The Apostle Paul is going to it's going to tell him what to do to be saved. He's going to lay out for him the Lord's plan of salvation. In fact, this plan of salvation. That Paul preached to the jailer, I want to suggest to you that this is the same plan of salvation that is taught all throughout the gospel. It is the same plan of salvation that Peter taught the Jews both in Acts 2 and Acts 10. It's the same plan of salvation that Philip taught to the Samaritans and to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. It is the same plan of salvation that Ananias taught Paul before he became a Christian in Acts 22 and verse 16. Paul is not teaching a contradictory plan of salvation here in Acts 16. And the only reason why I bring that up, my friends, is because so often that is exactly what a lot of people try to tell us today. Unfortunately, so often, and I've seen this done many times, and you probably have as well. Some people, some denominational preachers will go to this account in Acts 16 and they will say, well, here the Apostle Paul taught faith only salvation. He taught belief only salvation. He told this jailer that all you got to do to be saved is believe in Jesus Christ. Question, brothers and sisters, is that what Paul teaches in that text? Is that what Paul teaches in verse number 31? I want to emphasize to you with every fiber of my being that that is not what Paul is teaching in verse number 31. That is not what Paul taught in any part of the gospel. In fact, the only time when the language faith alone is used in the gospel is James 2 and verse 24, where James says faith alone will not save you. You see here in Acts 16 and verse 31. Paul is not teaching the jailer that all he has to do to be saved is believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, those who suggest such a thing, you know, you know what they need to do? They need to keep reading the text. They need to become good students of the text. They need to read beyond verse number 31. They need to also read verse number 32. Well, the scripture says that after Paul introduced to this man Jesus Christ, and after he told him about his need to believe in Jesus Christ, he then taught him the word of the Lord. He then preached to him the gospel. Preaching to him the gospel would have certainly included telling him more about the identity of Jesus. Telling him about how Jesus is the Lord and the Christ and the Son of God and how he died on the cross for his sins and was raised from the dead. Preaching the gospel would have also included telling him about the need for repentance. 
or about the need to turn away from his sins and turn to the Lord. It would have also certainly included telling this man about the need or the urgency for baptism for remission of sins. In fact, I think we see that clearly when you look back at verse number 33. Verse 33, after speaking the word of the Lord to the jailer and his household, the scripture says that Paul took them that very hour of the night. Keep in mind, here in the context, when you look at everything that's going on here, when the Bible says that very hour of the night, it's not talking about a 10 o'clock in the morning Sunday church service. It's not talking about two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And instead, here, the very hour of the night means about two or three o'clock in the morning. Two or three o'clock in the morning, immediately that very hour of the night, he was baptized. Two or three o'clock in the morning. He and all his household. What I just want you to see is when you put this account and when you consider everything Luke is saying about this event, what Paul taught on this occasion is no different than what is taught all throughout the gospel. It's no different than what Ananias taught Paul. In Acts 22 and verse 16, when Ananias said to him, why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul's not going to teach this man something different than what he was taught to become a Christian. Paul's not going to teach something different than what Jesus taught in Mark 16 and verse 16 when Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. The prescription the Lord gives here is the same thing that you find in Acts 16, right? The Bible's absolutely consistent on this point. Contrary to what some suggest, the jailer didn't become a Christian through a different process as everyone else. Instead, he became a Christian through the same process. He obeyed the same plan of salvation that everybody else did. In the book of Acts, the question is, what about you? What about you this morning? This morning, do you need to follow in the footsteps of the jailer? This morning, do you also need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and humble yourself before him and be baptized immediately right now for the forgiveness of your sins? If that's your desire this morning, then we certainly want to help you with that. And it will be our pleasure to right here, right now, come to the front. Let's stand. Let's sing together.